Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Digging In, Missouri Farm Bureau's podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Hawkins. And I tell you what, folks, I I say this a lot, that I'm thrilled to be able to uh, visit with the guests that we uh, line up for this program. But truly, today, it's fun to turn the tables and actually be the one asking questions of the Sarah Wyant. So Sarah Wyant is not new to the Missouri Farm Bureau family, but editor of AgriPulse. Um, she and her husband, Al, are such friends of Farm Bureau, American Farm Bureau, and state Farm Bureaus all across the country. But we're so glad that they reside in Camdenton now, and, and we get to see them on occasion. And, and Sarah, it's a real treat to have you on this podcast. How are y'all doing? I'm doing great, Garrett. And, you know, the pleasure is all mine. You do such great work at Missouri Farm Bureau. And I've got my plaque here on the wall in my office. It's uh, not right behind me, but I can it's in front of me and I can see it. And uh, I've just uh, always treasured the relationship with you and, and your members. So I'm happy to have a conversation with you today. <laughs> well, thanks. And, and so for our listeners, uh, so Miss Sarah actually received uh, one of our Outstanding Service to Agriculture Awards at an annual meeting a few years ago, recognizing her contributions to telling the story of agriculture, which is something you and your team do every day. And, and Sarah, I've got to ask, you know, AgriPulse, you guys just continue to grow. And maybe for our listeners, maybe just kind of go through the breadth of, of who AgriPulse is, because I see your expansion and new team members, and it truly is exciting. Yeah, thank you. We just brought on Jackie Fatka today, who has been the policy editor for Farm Progress Publications, where I worked at one point in time, and so did Al. Um, Jackie's got a long list of uh, years of experience and, and contacts in the ag policy space. And she's based in Ohio, but will be working out of Washington, D.C. and going to meetings around the country for us. So, um, as you know, Garrett, we started with just me <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> almost 19 years ago now. I'll be 19 next year. And so it's been a pleasure to be able to, you know, add on as um, our revenue grew to bring on some of the uh, really the best farm policy writers in the country. And I know I'm a little biased about that, but, you know, as as we were starting to really grow into this niche business of covering Capitol Hill with a focus on agricultural, rural issues and food and energy, uh, a lot of companies were backing out. You know, I remember as an Iowa farm girl growing up, always reading the Des Moines Register and they had their Washington Bureau. Well, Philip Rasher, who had worked in that once, went on to CQ from there and then Gannett, USA Today, uh, but then was out of a, a position. So we were able to bring on Phil Brasher, uh, Spencer Chase on our team, as you know, uh, Bill Thompson grew, uh, came in from Politico. So we were kind of fighting the odds of uh, doing this kind of coverage, but it's worked out really well because now we're the biggest and I say biggest, there's uh, six full-time in Washington, but that is the biggest group of editors focused on. <laughs> That's big. <laughs> ag and rural. 
And then um, we've got about 25 people that work for us around the country. Some are freelancers, but Brad Hooker is in our uh, California office in Sacramento, which we launched four years ago. So just every year we've continued to grow, uh, not only by bringing on top talent, but also by expanding our offerings from originally just a digital newsletter to an early morning podcast called Daybreak, uh, a news aggregation uh, called Daily Harvest, and then news throughout the day and opinion pieces and video, and most recently our Newsmakers show, which is a half-hour video program. It's a lot, and you also do several in-person events, including you know the Ag Outlook Forum in Kansas City. That's uh, a partnership with the Kansas City Agribusiness Council. That happens in September. Unfortunately, this year I wasn't able to attend because we had our state board meeting over on the other side of the state. But what were some takeaways from, from the Ag Outlook Forum? Yeah, we do three big in-person events, one in Washington, D.C., uh, right before National Ag Day, one in California uh, that will be in June next year, and then the Agribusiness Council partners with us for this Kansas City event with our good friends Bob Peterson and Erica Venancio. Um, we are just really pleased to bring this together with some of the key players at USDA as sort of a preview to what they do in February with their annual outlook meeting. So think of it as a kind of a wrap up the third quarter, look at what we're going to run into uh, when they release their annual numbers in February. And now as the Economic Research Service is based in the Kansas City area, that's an even better reason to work with them on their projections. I think overall, the take home I got from USDA Chief Economist Seth Myers and other economists who we had on the program was just the uncertainty that so many growers and ranchers face right now. <clears throat> you know, there is a lot of money in the marketplace uh, in terms of, uh, as, as you watch corn and soybean prices, for example, and the livestock sector, but there's also a lot of expenses. And whether it's fertilizer or whether it's fuel and you know diesel, uh, looking at all the different inputs that people are going to have to have in order to be productive and get uh, a crop out for 2023, there's just this uncertainty around everything. And we'd like to think that all these high prices are, are going to be lasting for a while, but you know we we just don't know. We don't know uh, how long the pressure is going to stay on on input prices and and how long margins are going to be squeezed. We don't know how long the war in Ukraine is going to last. Uh, what China might do uh, in terms of invading or trying to clamp down on Taiwan. Uh, just the global uncertainty, I think, was probably my biggest take home. Well, certainly, you know, uncertainty is the topic of conversation, whether I'm in the feed store or as I travel around the state. You know, folks are excited that harvest is upon us. We're moving at a rapid pace given our ongoing dry conditions here. I mean, now we have drought pretty much from north to south, all across Missouri, but but truly, what what's on people's minds is what's next, and you know the uncertainty and what happens after the November elections with fuel prices. We're heading the other direction again. 
what do inputs look like? We don't seem to see any relief in sight. So, so you nailed it. Uncertainty really is the topic, I think, around the countryside. Yeah, and I wish we could, you know, I wish we could give a clearer crystal ball on that front um, because these inflationary pressures are uh, not going to last forever. But, um, you know, even with the Federal Reserve cracking down and, and raising interest rates, it, it could be quite some time before we start to see things reverse. And, and then, you know, do we go into a full-blown recession and what impact that might have on demand? So um, there, there's I'm, there's no shortage of things to write about. I guess that's uh, one of <laughs> our business. But at the same time, I wish we could tell people with with uh, a little more laser focus that you know here's how you plan. Um, I, I just think staying informed on issues is even more important during this kind of you know time of trepidation. Okay, so I've got to ask, time of trepidation and uncertainty, how do you think that's going to play into November elections? I mean, obviously, you're staying abreast of the key races, how the House and Ag, uh, House and Senate Ag committees will shape up post-November elections. So what what's your sense as you travel the country? So, you know, there, there's a lot of folks that I talk to about whether, you know, what's going to drive independent voters, because for the most part, Republicans have pretty much made up their mind. Democrats have pretty much made up their mind. Uh, there might be some in both those parties where uh, there's still a little bit of wiggle room and they haven't made up their mind yet. And But, you know, I think what most people are trying to figure out is what's going to sway the independents to to uh, move their vote one way or the other. And as you know, we had a Supreme Court decision that um, turned the decisions on um, Roe v. Wade upside down and, and gave a lot of momentum in some states. I think you even saw in Kansas uh, during their primary, how that energized voters because they thought that the, the you know, these rights uh, to life and, and to abortion, that whole debate has kind of energized some folks. Um, but I, I honestly think that energy has dissipated a little bit as people go to the grocery store and they just look at how they're being impacted by inflation. And I kind of come back to, you know, James Carville, um, you know, his line about it's the economy, stupid, you know, that that's kind of... yep. Where I think people come back to is these pocketbook issues, and then it comes down to who do they think is going to be best to help them deal with those pocketbook issues. So, for example, I bought, um, uh, got a really good price on 18 eggs the other day, $4.49, and I thought, wow, if I was in California right now, I'd probably pay in $7 for the same eggs, you know? But at the same time, the bacon, I bought a three pound thing of bacon. It was almost $20. And I'm thinking, why would I even want to buy bacon? Except that I love bacon. <laughs> and I was, yeah. happy. <laughs> you know, people are, these have impacts. People are hurting. There's no doubt about it. I see it every day in, in our town of Appleton. You replicate that not just across Missouri, but all across the country. People are hurting. The dollar's not going as far as it used to. And, and people are feeling that every time they sit down at the table, I think, mm -hmm. um, for sure. So well, as you. Well, as you know, too, I mean, we've got in rural America, we've got a lot of kids that 
Now, if their folks aren't able to buy the basics like eggs and milk, then, you know, do they go to school hungry? I mean, there's these ripple effects of all the things that happen if we don't have the ability to feed our families. Exactly. And of course, I think of seniors living on a fixed income and, and it just across the board, we know families are getting impacted. You know, farm and ranch families also feel the effect as consumers, as well as uh, everything that we purchase on the farm has dramatically increased in cost. I've reminded folks, you know, this past summer, every trip across the field as I stacked hay cost me twice as much as it did last year in fuel costs, net wrap, everything we touch has gone up. So what what's the discussion? You know, we're starting to warm up thinking about farm bill. So how do all of these issues that are on farmers and ranchers minds, how do you think those are translating into to the committees as we start thinking about farm policy? So if you look at the, you know, most of the political pundits right now, we're saying there's going to be a 31 so swing, 30, 20 to 30 seat swing uh, for the Republicans on the House side. I don't think it's probably going to be as robust as that, but even just with a simple majority, it would put G.T. Thompson from Pennsylvania as chair of the House Ag Committee and um, Mr. David Scott is ranking most likely. So what that means is that you've, you're gonna have a Republican lens for a lot of things that are, would potentially be developed as part of the farm bill. Uh, that means that whereas Mr. Scott might've come from you know, his chairmanship elevating the role of climate and that how that intersects with conservation policies, I think G.G. Thompson will not be looking at things through a climate lens. He will be looking at things more through what does this mean for the economics of farmers and ranchers and, and uh, be very focused on pocketbook issues like margins and things like that. So depending on who is, again, in the majority after this November election, you could see quite a bit of shift in focus on farm policy. You know, we just, um, we at the state level had a Missouri Farm Bureau Farm Bill Task Force of members that that our board had appointed, kind of representing a cross-section of our membership. And, and as I sit in and listen to their discussions, I'm not hearing a lot of appetite for revolutionary changes in farm policy per se, particularly in row crop agriculture. You know, just last weekend, American Farm Bureau brought folks together for the Federal Milk Marketing Order Summit. So I'm anxious to hear what may come out of that. But are you hearing any any indications of, of any organizations proposing revolutionary concepts? No, that's a simple one. Um, not from the ag community, <laughs> but, but from the environmental community and from other NGOs. You know, I think the one thing I would encourage everybody to watch out for, and, and again, you know, we're going to have a lot of new members potentially. And, and in Missouri, you're losing Vicki Hartzler, who's been, you know, uh, just a, a great, not only Missouri Farm Bureau member, but member of the House Ag Committee. And you're, you know, depending on if it's Mark Alford uh, who wins, that's a, a new face potentially on the House Ag Committee. Eric Burleson, um, 
is running to replace Billy Long, who stepped down. You've got uh, Senator Blunt, who wasn't on ag, but appropriations, key role. I, I would just encourage everyone to get to know whoever wins uh, these elections to replace these members who are not running again, and then to spend the time telling your own personal story about what is going on and how the federal government can either help or get out of the way uh, in, in terms of, of uh, assisting uh, their livelihood. And, and that could be replicated in a lot of other states, you know, depending on, again, how these elections go, that we could have a real educational opportunity here to tell people, yeah, we don't maybe want a revolutionary farm policy or, um, you know, this group that has advanced a concept that says you have to do X, Y, and Z in order to qualify for crop insurance. That's, you know, maybe you want to say that's a non-starter. The, all these discussions are going to be very important after the midterms. Well, appreciate that. And, you know, our folks, we continue to try to pay attention to conservation and make sure that that we don't see essentially a, a, a further drive to social engineer conservation programs. And, you know, as I try to remind folks, you know, conservation only works when the programs are there, they're common sense, and farmers and ranchers want to raise their hand or walk through the door of USDA and, and decide to enter into this voluntary relationship, right? To, to work with USDA to partner to put more conservation practices on the ground. And my frustration has been just when, when groups want to add, 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 add more red tape to programs and make it more difficult uh, and almost disincentivize farmers and ranchers. You know, we want to do more conservation on the ground and, and we like to talk about common sense conservation. Where are the gaps in existing conservation policy where we can plus up programs and do even more? And I think here in Missouri, we've had a great story to tell when you look at the state soil and water program coupled with the federal opportunities. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I hear that from farmers and ranchers all the time. It's just that I want to do good things for the environment, but please make it possible for me to do that without so much of a regulatory burden and red tape. So we're on, we're in agreement there. Uh, you know, before we wrap up, Sarah, I want to talk about just some positive things happening in the state and, and and maybe you can give some examples across the country too, but it's been really fun in recent weeks to, to celebrate the, the groundbreaking of American Foods Group, you know, Missouri landing a, a, for us, a large scale meat processing facility, modern one on the eastern side of Missouri. That truly is the buzz, um, not just in cattle country, but amongst all of Missouri agriculture. You know, we have seen that happen because of the Parson administration cutting red tape and working hard to, to show that Missouri is a place to do business. Um, you know, we're excited about what we can do in the space of processing. Uh, so I guess as you look around the country, you know, are what are the glimmers? What are the bright spots that you're hearing from folks amongst all of these challenges? Well, I think one of the things that you you mentioned, of course, is the heightened awareness about meat processing capacity. And not all of them are going to be as big as, as that new uh, facility. But even around the country where you've seen uh, during the pandemic, people started to worry more about how local foods and how they can uh, access that. We're seeing a lot of smaller meat processors who might have been slaughtering 
you know, a couple of cows a week expands so they could do five or six or, you know, so it's doubling, but it's still relatively small. And I think those mom and pop operations seeing their growth, uh, some of them are a little bit bigger than that. As you know, Burgers, uh, Smokehouse and Western, and um, there's a lot of big names uh, that have, have continued to grow during this time. So I think that's one highlight. And I think uh, everybody's got to be really proud of what you've done on broadband to try to make sure that the attention is still focused on broadband because it's been improving, but we still have a ways to go. And and you you know you had your recent testimony on that, and I think uh, heightened awareness there. And then just uh, you know more broadly, the things that we're doing um, through. Uh, training and and trying to bring more young people into agriculture. Uh, I'm mindful of this because we've got the National FFA Convention coming up next week where I'll be for doing a little bit of judging. And I, I just love the fact that there are so many FFA and 4-H chapters around the state and that you at Missouri Farm Bureau are, are doing more to, to make sure that people see the opportunities in agriculture that, yeah, there may be some uh, dark spots on the horizon and some uncertainty, but all in all, there are a lot of career opportunities. There are a lot of ways to get involved in ag and food. And um, we need we need that next generation to stay engaged. Amen to that. You know, we've had a proud history in Missouri of having collegiate Farm Bureau chapters. We just launched one at Ozark Technical Community College. So the two-year school in Springfield and the young, uh, young leaders came and observed our resolutions process last week when our state resolutions committee was in. And we've also launched a new chapter at Lincoln, our 1890 institution, oh. and, and being able to talk to them about just the great opportunities there are in, in all aspects of agriculture. So I agree with you continuing to invest in those who are going to come behind us, I think is is really what propels me every day when I think about the policy challenges that we have. You know, it's not so much for me as it is for for my kids and paving the op creating the opportunity if they want to come home to the farm or be involved in a in a rural business or what have you. There's room for everybody, <laughs> and broadband, rural health, all these things are important pieces of the puzzle. Absolutely. Well, anything else you want to share with our listeners as we as we wrap up, Sarah? This is this is really fun to be able to turn the table and ask you questions. For well, us. now you're going to go out. I think you should go interview some more journalists. Um, I think it's a healthy thing to ask others <laughs> questions about their coverage. But no, I guess just uh, in closing, Garrett, um, again, we really appreciate the opportunity to work with you and your team. And 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 we really are a service-oriented media company. Uh, you know, I started because my dad would have questions about certain things. And, and I think that when you have your taxpayer dollars going into, whether it's local, state, or federal government, you have a right to know. Uh, what is going on and to ask those questions. And so we feel very, very blessed to be able to do that on behalf of farmers and ranchers across the country. And we just want to continue to be fueled by that passion to get information out there. 
Well, thank you for what you and your team do every day to tell the story of agriculture and really the stories of those of us who live and work in rural America. Um, you all do a tremendous job. You're fair and balanced. And, and certainly I know I look forward to, to keeping up with your publications. That's one of the best ways for me to keep up with the beat across the country. So just thanks for what you do. Thanks for being a friend to farmers and ranchers and give my best to Al and Folks, this has been another edition of Digging In and look forward to catching up with you again soon. Take care.